Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, I'm Judy Langhans from the Center for Learning and Professional Development. And I'd like to thank you for joining us for this special session of Nursing Grand Rounds entitled The Emerging Role of the Clinical Nurse Leader. And I'd also like to welcome anyone that's viewing this session online. Just a few housekeeping details before we get started. Please be sure to sign in. You must attend 80% of the program to receive credit. For those viewing online, please feel free to email me during the presentation with any questions you may have. And also email me after the uh, within one hour of the presentation with your name, degree, and postal zip code um, so I can record your attendance. My email address is judith.m.langhans, that's L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org. Everyone attending today will receive a link to an evaluation shortly after the program. The Center for Learning and Professional Development values your feedback and hopes you take a moment to complete the evaluation. Your contact hour will be posted to your online transcript within two weeks, and instructions on how to access your online transcript are available by the sign-in sheet. If you have any questions, you can contact me. And finally, please silence your cell phone and pagers. Neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial relationship or interest with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. It is my pleasure to welcome Gay Landstrom, Chief Nursing Officer, who will introduce our guest speaker today. Thank you. Well, I'm totally delighted to have the opportunity to introduce um, Toy to you. Um, Toy and I have known one another since probably 2008, um, when in one of my previous systems we began a CNL program in partnership with the University of Detroit Mercy and developed a master's degree and, um, and actually there were a couple of years of planning even before that. But um, we developed a master's degree, we graduated 39 um, of our brightest and best nurses and then deployed them in CNL roles across our system. So um, I'm very proud uh, to be able to introduce Toy. Toy Bartley is a clinical nurse lead currently in the Sparrow Health System in Lansing, Michigan, the state's capital there. Um, she was um, there. She is leading the work to uh, develop a CNL program. Previously, she was a pioneer CNL at St. Joseph Mercy Health System in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, she's a bachelor's graduate from the University of Michigan School of Nursing and, um, as I said, graduated from the University of Detroit <laughs> Mercy uh, master's degree uh, in, uh, clinical, as a clinical nurse leader. She is um, a longtime critical care nurse um, since 1999. She's also served as a critical care educator prior to being a CNL. She's won numerous awards for education and research um, locally, as well as she received the Joan Stanley Clinical Nurse Leader Award in 2010. So um, Toy's been um, increasingly recognized nationally as a pioneer leading the way for other CNLs. She currently, uh, as a part of the Commission on Nurse Certification, she's a writer for the Clinical Nurse Leader Certification Exam, so she is an inside um, there. Yeah. She, is, 
she is on the Commission of Nursing Certification Board of Commissioners um, as a commissioner, a treasurer. She chairs the Finance Committee, and she is now a CNL ambassador. Um, and so you're speaking to lots of people about CNL. Um, and you're also, um, you were coordinator of Ann Arbor CNLs for Global Nursing initiative and I know some of you are really passionate about global nursing so um, she's done many things as a pioneer has gained so much experience and understanding of the clinical nurse leader role and we are just delighted to have you with us Toy um, and are looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can you guys hear me? Can you see me? <laughs> Well, first of all, I would like to thank um, everyone for um, Special Gay for inviting me to speak to you about this, uh, this role that I'm so passionate about. You know, I had an interesting um, experience yesterday. You know, um, I flew in from Boston, uh, from Detroit to Boston uh, using Delta Airlines and from, um, from um, Boston to here, um, I flew through the Cape Air so I was, yeah, yesterday, and it's very windy. And the interesting thing is, you know, I found the terminal, the Cape Air, and the first thing that the lady asked me is, how much do you weigh? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, how rude, you know? It's like, I was just thinking, how rude? And I guess what my response is, my response is, I'm really trying to lose weight. <laughs> and then she, she just uh, gave me a big smile and says, no, ma'am, we really need to know because we need to balance the plane. <laughs> I said, just how, how big is the plane? So I didn't realize my husband did all this, you know, for my trip or, or, or all the planning, right? I didn't realize that I'm going to be flying in a nine-seater plane. And, and, and so I was in the plane really nervous, and, you know, I'm holding on to everything because we were bumping, bumping my head, bumping my arms, right? And, 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 and there's this little old lady by my side. She's just reading, we're very relaxed. And I'm like, she, she looked at me and I think she re realized that I was really nervous because I was, I was really nervous. And she goes, oh, don't worry about it, honey. It's just like riding a roller coaster. <laughs> and I go, well, I hate riding a roller coaster. But I mean, that's, that, that's, that is an experience, and, and I learn. You know, I learn. It, it is really, it's really, and, and I called my husband, I told my husband, guess what? It was really windy yesterday. I thought I was going to die. But, you know, I've never flown in a, in a very small plane. But it's a learning experience for me, and then I have to do it again tomorrow on the way back. <laughs> but anyway, enough of that. So what I'm going to be talking about actually is the, um, uh, CNL role, the merging role of the clinical nurse leader. Who among you are clinical nurse leaders here? Yay, that's good, that's all good. Where's my clicker here? Let me find my clicker here. So, first of all, let, let's talk about what I'm gonna be talking here. So I'm gonna give you a brief history of the role of the CNL, okay? And then I'm gonna describe to you the impact, the impact of the CNL role in the critical care setting where I'm at. And then I'm gonna identify a possible role for the CNL in the care of our coordination across the healthcare continuum. As you guys know, a CNL is not just inpatient. A CNL is not just for the microsystem. A CNL can be everywhere, okay? So uh, let's give me a brief history. I'm, so, I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna tell you, this is not gonna be boring, but I'm gonna be quick about this, okay? The CNL designation was first proposed by AACN to address patient safety and quality of care. 
there are actually two reports that uh, catalyzed the creation of a CNL role. And some of you probably know about this already. The report, The Earliest Human, Building a Safer Health System. This is actually a report that gave insight into the frequency of preventable medical errors. Do you guys know that there are about 55,000 to 98,000 Americans that die every year because of medical errors? And you're thinking, mom, dad, I'm gonna send you to the hospital and then they couldn't come back. We don't want that, right? So that's a lot, 44,000 to 98,000, I should say, die every year of medical, of preventable medical errors. And so, thank God we have this report. That's why we have a job, CNL, because, <laughs> because this really, uh, um, uh, this, uh, this, this is really the impetus for the creation of this role. And there's another one, Crossing the Quality Chasm, a new, system, a new health system for the 21st century. So the CNL role is then confirmed through discussions uh, with, uh, uh, by AACN and the healthcare uh, leaders and also uh, healthcare executives. In 2006, the first CNL clinical nurse leaders were certified. 2007 is the creation of the CNC. What is the CNC? CNC is the Commission on Nurse Certification. They are actually the certifying body of the uh, clinical nurse leaders. So you guys have to take the exam, right, through CNC. And the CNC certification program is actually accredited by the National Commission for Certifying Agencies. So right now, 2015, there are actually 3,500 of us. You guys know that? There's more of us now, which is good, right? So some of you who wants to be a CNL, join us. Anyway, there's 3,500 CNLs now, and there are actually 70 master's degree programs available of school nursing to prepare clinical nurse leaders across the country. And 90 education practice partnerships are active at this time. The VA hospital, they are the nation's largest employer of RMs, are actually gonna be initiating CNLs in all of their microsystems by 2016. That's gonna be interesting. So when you see a CNL by somebody else's name, that means that individual actually is, has a master's degree. Um, master's degree and they have taken the exam uh, given by the CNC, they pass it. Having a CNL accreditation, having a CNL by their name means that they have graduated, right, from the master's degree program. They have clinical experience, have actually completed about 350 to 400 clinical hours as a clinical uh, nurse leader. So you have to go through this immersion. So what makes a clinical nurse leader really distinct from other um, advanced practical clinical roles? What makes us different? Well, clinical nurse leader actually designs, implements, evaluates patient care by coordinating, delegating, supervising the care provided by healthcare system. We want to make sure that we're always using the latest evidence to ensure that the patients, that the, the, that the care that patients receiving is, is evidence-based and is the best care. How in the world can we do that? How can a CNL do that? Because the CNL is actually at the bedside. We are bedside clinicians. We are at the point of care. We are there at the bedside. So that makes us different from the other advanced uh, practice nurses. <clears throat> we are able to see what's happening at our microsystem. So as you can see, a CNL can do the rounds. So when I started my CNL role in 2010, um, I start my day by doing my own round. I go from room to room. 
So I work in critical care as a CNL. What I do is I have a list of all the things I want to check about the patient. So if I have a patient who's in a ventilator, I want to make sure that the VAE bundles, we used to, be, we used to call it VAP bundles, are, be, are in place. Hey, patient is in, is, is in a ventilator, head of the bed up. <clears throat> want to make sure the subglottic secretion drainage is going on, is happening. Want to make sure the teeth getting brushed. Want to make sure that patient is not on continuous station. We don't like continuous station because that actually promotes delirium, right? We want to make sure that the patient's central, how long has the dressing been there? We want to make sure that, hey, the patient's getting fed within 24 to 48 hours. Those patients need the nutrition, right? Hey, the Foley, does the patient really need that? There's no indication for that. Most of the common things that they'll get say, well, the patient's strict, I know. Well, you know what, let's put a condom cap. So in our institution, even though the patient's strict, I know, if it's a male, we put a condom cap. A condom cap that works, by the way. And I know of a condom cap that works. I know you guys are saying, condom cap, they never work. They always slap off. <laughs> Did you guys know that there's a, you use those chlorhexidine thing, the wash, the body wash, you know, if, if they, that product that you're utilizing actually has the dimethicone, that actually makes the skin slippery. So after you wash your patient's body and you put the condom cap and slipping off, take a look at the product if they have dimethicone. And who told me this is actually a condom cat wrap, okay? So we have changed the condom cat and seem to be working. So strict INO is not really an indication for a Foley, okay? So think about that. Now I'll be happy to talk to you more about that because that's one of my biggest projects. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, quality is a big thing. Uh, anyway, so I'm gonna, uh, so, so we, we are at the point of care. We know, we know what's going on with the patient. We look at each patient every day so we can influence the care. We can also teach at the bedside, right? If this is not happening, why is it so important that you take out the folding? So you have to do your, your two minute in service to the nurse saying that, hey, every day that your patient has a fold increases their risk for CAUTI by six to 10%, right? So they need to know why, why, why? Why are we actually doing this? Okay, that is very important. You know, you just don't tell nurses to, hey, you gotta do this, do this, do this, but you need to always say why, 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 all right? So we're part of the interdisciplinary team of physicians, pharmacists, social worker, and so on and so forth. We work together <laughs> in taking care of the patient. What makes a clinical nurse leader role so different is that we coordinate the care at the bedside. What do I mean by that? Do you guys have interdisciplinary rounding? Interdisciplinary rounding is very important, and the CNL can actually coordinate that. They may not lead the round in the ICU to the attending leads that, but the clinical nurse leader can make sure that the members of the team are actually collaborating and talking to one another about the care of the patients. We can see, what do you think is the cost of fragmentation of care right now? You know, everybody that does their own EMR reporting, you know, some arrest and cut and paste and all that, they should not be right. Um, also, so they do their own thing. But you know what, we, and the, 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 the physicians sometimes will only look at the chart of what other people have charted if they need to, you know? It needs to be in the interdisciplinary rounding. Every member of the, interdisciplinary, the interdisciplinary team have to be there during rounds. 
So uh, how does a clinical nurse leader function as that? Well, what they're going to do is a clinical nurse leader will be the coordinator. Imagine a CNL is like a, a spider in the middle of the web, right? But we're not slow, okay? So we're a spider. <laughs> we're a spider in the middle of the web where the web is a connection to all members of the team. So the CNL, as a spider, we connect to the charge nurse. We connect to the pharmacist if they're not there in the rust. We connect to the um, respiratory therapist. We connect to the nutritionist, and so on and so forth. During interdisciplinary rounding, right? That's why you have to have a phone, right? You have to have a phone to be able to communicate with them, and they, in turn, need to communicate with you. And how does this work? When I go to rounds, a lot of times I will connect with the charges. Hey, Kim, by the way, just so I can let you know, Dr. Mubarak just accepted a patient from ER. Do we have the staff for that? Or do we even have the room for that, right? Oh, Tony, just want to let you know, we're starting this patient an insulin drip. Can you adjust the, the, the two feeding, right? Hey, Patrick, pharmacist, you know, I just want to let you know that, you know, this patient being antibiotics, I know you're ch checking on it, but they decided to go to take another microbiology and see, change the antibiotic. So there is a constant communication to the members of the team. Social worker, you know what, we really need a palliative care consult on this patient. This patient has been here for 10 days, things like that. And they, in turn, know who their contact person is, and that's you. The clinical nurse leader, they they call you. Hey, Tor, just want to make sure that they address this issue. You know, we we cannot get a place at U of M Hospital because you know the the the, the insurance does not allow that. Things like that. So they know how to contact, and you know how to contact them. And that's a way to make sure that there is consistent, effective communication between the members of the team. Because if you don't have that there will be fragmentation of care. As you guys know, if there's fragmentation of care, there are more mistakes, right? So we need to defragment the care, and that means that there should be effective communication among members of the team. What I mean by effective is timely and consistent at the point of care. Does it make sense to everyone? So that, that's, a, that's a big role for a clinical nurse leader, and we have done that on my uh, previous employer. And, and that really works, and they really truly appreciate that, you know? Um, so uh, there have been a lot of reports of the positive impact of CNLs in, in the practice setting. We actually improve patient, nurse, and physician satisfaction. Why is that? For a patient, it's very important that we advocate for whatever the patient needs, whatever the patient wants. We coordinate the care at the bedside, make things easier for the members of the team, and they really appreciate, appreciate that when there's somebody, especially the young nurses who's just starting critical care, that there's somebody they can go to. A lot of times, if we don't have a CNL, you know, they go to the churches, but the church is so busy, right? They're doing a lot of other things. Oh, yeah, we don't have the staff for this and all that. Clinical nurses always need to be available to our young nurses because we need to mentor them. We need to uh, have them practice critical thinking. What about for the patient? It's very important that we advocate for what the patient wants and needs, okay? And for the physician, physicians love CNLs. Just want to let you, I just want to let you know. They realize the importance of the CNL because we are making great outcomes. We are improving the, the care of the patient at the bedside, and they know who to talk to if things are not getting done right, all right? CNL also elevate the practice of all nurses, promoting critical thinking and innovation nursing care. 
Well, how is that? Well, because we're bedside clinician. We teach and mentor at the bedside. We also challenge traditional practice. Why is that? If it's not evidence-based, why are we doing that? You know, we, 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 have, we have an open mind. We are change agent. If something is like, oh, is that, you know, this is how we've always done it. A clinical nurse leader needs to challenge that, needs to look at the latest evidence and do your literature search and see. You have a medical librarian who's so willing to always help you, right? I know in the institution we do. And he's so, um, he's very, um, he's very tense and say, hey, these are all the information you need to, I'll give it to you. I said, great, I need all that. Because I need, because sometimes you don't have to do all those literature search, but utilize your medical librarian, okay? Look at the current evidence. If it's not an evidence, you know, it's not evidence-based, really, I mean, do we still need to do that? Because there's a lot of things in nursing that's by tradition. We do it because that's what tradition tells us to do. And again, a clinical nurse leader decreased fragmentation of care, and I think I've elaborated that earlier. During interdisciplinary, we want to ensure that members of the team communicate effectively during interdisciplinary rounding in a timely, consistent manner at the point of care, at the bedside. We improve patient care outcomes. How is that? Because we're outcomes manager. We do metrics. You know, um, you know, CNO doesn't spend all their time just doing metrics, right? We don't. I mean, you can do uh, um, a metric like every two weeks. Right? You don't have to do the same metric over and over again every day. And then what do you do with your metrics? What do you do with the outcomes? But the important thing is learning from, from, the, from the metrics, learning from what you have observed, and you know, asking the team, what are we going to do about it? And that's what, exactly what I do. I do my own metrics. I, do, I take a look at who has the folly. Okay? And there was a time that we were really taking out follies like crazy, and there's a time where like, Oh my God, nobody's taking out folies anymore. Why is that? Why is that happening? So we do, we discuss it during our huddle. We have our huddles. What's going on here? But you really need to involve every member of the team. You need to, because they're all, they all need to know. They, they, they are experts in their own field. Starting from the nurses, the physicians, the pharma, they are all, in our huddle, everyone is included. And you'll be surprised all the things that they're gonna tell you. It is not the clinical nurse leaders. It's not all about what we think. It's all about what the group thinks because each of the members of the interdisciplinary team are an expert in what they do. Always share the metrics, always learn from it, always do a learning from defect tool. We have also empower uh, nurses to ask questions, seek best possible solutions. You know, you'll have a lot of young nurses who who are, you know, they follow protocols. They're so good in following protocols. It's not only the young nurses, but all senior nurses. But when the patient's conditions differs <laughs> from the protocol, they don't know what to do because, because they don't know what, why they're doing things. So CNL can actually help them out at the point of care. They're available at the microsystem. So you ask them, why are we doing that? I mean, why, why do we need uh, fluids for a patient's DKA? Now you can do your education right there and then. We manage change, promote, uh, promote team-based approach to care. Well, well, yeah, we are change agents. We promote collaboration among members of the team, foster team building, having respectful communication. Like what I said, every team member is an expert in what they do. I've, uh, I've actually used this in our, in our um, what I've done is, um, you know, during our huddle, originally we don't involve the ES staff. 
But what I've done is involve every, every member of the team, from the attending physician to the ES staff to the artist. Everyone needs to attend. It's mandatory to attend our huddle, okay? Huddle, do you guys huddle here? Our huddle is only five minutes, you know? All we ask them is five minutes. And after five minutes, that, that's all we ask them. After five minutes, they have something to do. Go ahead, you can go, you're okay. Uh, but there are times that there are really very, very good conversations, very good discussions. So I don't interrupt that. I'll let you keep on going as long as they're, you know, communicating. It's all good, right? But all I ask is five minutes. So what we have, I've done is include, I, our CD rate is really going up very, very high. I said, you know what? Everyone needs to, to be a part of this. So we have included the ES step. And lo and behold, we have a lot of things to say of why our CD rate is going up. They actually became my ally, you know. Um, they, uh, when we were huddling, they were saying that, you know what, because we have this caddy in all of our rooms, right, for if you have in contact isolation, we have this yellow caddy where we have all our isolation, our PPE stuff, our gloves and everything. What they have found out that not everyone is using the PPEs. And who told, who, uh, who, who has been observing that is the environmental staff. And, and that even surgeons go to the patient's room without gloves. And who told us that? Environmental staff. Uh, yeah, it's eye-opening. And we're like thinking, wow. And you know what? You, normally in our unit, nobody wants to work as ES staff because we're so dirty. I mean, we're not dirty, but I mean, our environment is dirty. We're like CD, VR, MRSA, name it, we have it, right? It's medicine, it's medical intensive care. So normally ES staff don't want to work with us. But once I have included them as part of our team, they speak at the huddles, we uh, pat them in the back, one wonderful job. They become empowered to speak and say something if somebody's not doing their hand washing. Hey, you need to really do that. They're even helping me with coffee. Hey, I saw that the uh, bag is on the floor, so I pick it up. And I said, toys, there are a way where we can really hook up our holy bag, because keep them full. We're doing progressive mobility, and the patient's Patient fall is on the floor. So as they go, why don't we use a basin and just put it in there? You know, we don't use basin now for giving bats, right? You guys don't do that, right? <laughs> because the biofilm buildup now. So we have a use for them now. We put our folly until we find, until we find uh, a spot where we can really hang our folly. You know, when you're doing progressive mobility, our recliners don't have a place to hang up our folly. That's why it keeps falling down, right? So yeah, we use the basin because it's still there and we're not even using it. So we're using now for fully, um, we're doing progressive mobility. So those are important. And so once we have involved our ES staff, they're empowered to speak, you know, uh, and they, they feel good about themselves. And you know, you'll see them as, as I go, hey, so hi, how are you doing? And they keep on wiping the high touch areas with bleach, you know? So they are empowered because they're members of the team. And they actually have told me, you know, it's real, I'm really nervous talking in the huddle because everyone's looking. I said, no, you're part of the team. It's okay. And so, you know, they feel good. And so they're doing a wonderful job. Anyway, I have a lot more stories, but I don't have time. So, <laughs> so we, look, we look at the bigger picture. You know, uh, a lot of times we look at the, when, 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 uh, um, when, when you're doing a learning from defect tool, you, you really need to learn from it. You really need to meaningfully use it. You can just say, hey, that's what happened. Oh, we learned from it. Oh, then what do you do about it? You gotta do something about it because that's a good opportunity to learn from your mistakes, right? It is. 
And what do you do with what you have learned? What do you do with what you have learned? You need to share that. You need to share that with the other CNLs. You need to share that with other units. You need to share that with other hospitals. Hey, look what we have done. We learned from our mistakes. I want to share this with you. So Robert Wood Foundation Innovative Care Delivery Models that include the following points about the impact. So it doesn't stop there. Robert Wood Foundation, they said, hey, CNLs are really working well. We love the CNLs. They said that we are the red threat. Red threat infl information flow managers. How is that possible? Because we know the story of the patient. You know, there will be times that you know, where our patient will have a lot of dressing changes, very complicated dressing changes. So what we do is I talk to the CNL before we transfer the patient to intermediate care unit. Hey, Becky, just want to let you know this is how we do the dressing change. So you guys don't have to reinvent it. This is how we've done it. Big time dressing change all over the body. This is how we've done it. Make things easier for you. And that's the way how a CNL can be an information flow manager. Because we know the story of the patient already. So we pass on this information to the next, to the next, so there's continuity of care, okay? Complex care meetings at Sparrow Hospital, we have meetings, uh, what we call complex care meetings, where patients who've been in ICU more than 10 days, we need to talk about it. We need to talk about what's the barrier. Why can't we move this patient on? What's going on? So we meet, and uh, CNL is a big part of that. And the CNL has a lot to contribute. Okay, and that's what I found out that we're not really utilizing palliative care. It's very underutilized, okay? We are a clinical resource. Are we an expert in everything? Of course not, right? We're not an expert in anything, but we, are, we need to be an expert in who to call. Make sense? And who to call. That's why a CNL needs to have their own phone. You need to have your own phone. <laughs> And your phone number needs to be advertised throughout the whole system to all the members of the team. Because guess what? This phone, you will be using that a lot, right? You need to know the phone for the pharmacy, for the risk management, for the palliative care, respiratory service, everyone in the whole system. And, you know, guess what? They'll be finding your phone number at... <laughs> CNS, I get a lot of calls from CNS. We somehow complement our role. CNS is a big, they have a different um, expertise, and, and they're, they're dealing more with larger group patient population disease process. But we are in the microsystem. We complement the role of clinical nurse specialists. Make sense? So, uh, so you need to know your connection as a CNL, okay? And, and we are also interlinked, we interlink patient safety and unit goals. We make things happen at the bedside because as a master prepared, we can make things happen because we are there every day at the bedside, at the point of care. So that's what makes the CNL uh, a very good role. We also uh, advocate for patients and family. You know, one of the things I found out that's really very nice, I learned it from Sparrow, is actually there are days that I feel like, what is my purpose? What am I doing? Don't you feel sometimes like that? Yeah. I mean, did I really make a difference? What am I doing? I'm just walking around. When, when I feel like that, you know what I do? I actually go to a patient's room and do my nurse leader rounding. And I sit down with a wonderful patient, maybe, maybe three or four, depending on how much time I have. So I ask them, is there something important 
I can do for you today that you would like to accomplish? Just, just say that. You'll be surprised that they have, the, they have their own, they, there are things that they would like to accomplish. I've had uh, family, uh, patients who told me, you know, I really want to see my dog. You know, I miss her so much. And that's her only family. I actually have a patient uh, a few weeks ago who, uh, this patient has AFib. So she's already, she's, she's AFib with RVR, and then uh, she's already amyodorant drip, and so on and so forth. But she keeps on crying, 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 crying. She's 82 years old. I feel so bad for her. So I sat down with her. Mrs. Smith, is there something I can do for you today that's important that you want to accomplish? I mean, what is really bothering you? Why are you crying? And then she told me that her husband is actually on a different unit in the hospital. He's also in the hospital. So she keeps crying. And, I, and, she, goes, oh, and she goes, I wish I can see him. And I said, ding. Yeah. <laughs> so I told the nurse, hey, Hillary, let's, let's take her option. And Hillary goes, no, Tor, we cannot do that. The patient's aching with RBR. I said, don't worry, we'll carry the, the portable monitor. It's OK, I'll be with you. OK, let's do it. Put her in the, put her in the wheelchair. Uh, we, we, uh, we wheeled her up to her patient's room, her husband's room. And guess what? You know, as soon as I wheeled the patient uh, into, into her husband's room, they hug each other. They hug each other and hug and hug, and then she fell asleep. <laughs> she fell asleep in her husband's arms, and, and lo and behold, within a few minutes, the AFib turned into sinus rhythm. Aww. I swear to God, that's really what happened. <laughs> And I said, wow, you know, she has a heavy heart. She has, she's so worried about her husband. And, and he already, the nurse goes, Toy, that really works. Are we going to be doing this at all? Or <laughs> <laughs> so um, so that, that, you know, you feel good about that. You feel good about making a difference. And, and, the, and the patient's family is like over so uh, thankful for what we have done. And they keep on telling the stories to everyone. Uh, to, to the physicians, to the, the other patients, families, and so on and so forth. So that's but mainly just asking, just something I can do for you today that you would like to accomplish, okay? We're, we bridge the communication gap between all healthcare providers, and you can, you, you know now why, right? We are the gooey stuff. They call us the gooey stuff, the constant person. The, the, uh, we know the story of the patient, where the red thread and all that. There's a lot of wonderful names that they have given us. One of the names that was given me when I was first starting to be a CNL is they call me Toy Soprano. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never really truly understand that at first. And so I went home and asked my husband, you know what, honey? They call me Toy Soprano. What does that mean? I mean, and, they told, and he told me, have you been bossy lately? <laughs> so, and he further on explained to me who Tony Soprano is. <laughs> so, so, the residents were just like, well, I don't think they think they're bossy. Hey, you call me, do you think I'm really bossy? Oh, no, Toy, you know, you're doing good things. I said, okay, I just want to make sure. <laughs> yeah, I've been called Toy Soprano, I've been called Toy Tornado. <laughs> because as I go through each patient room, I teach and I say, hey, you know what? We gotta make changes with this. Look at this, look at, look at this thing. But we're doing, we're not doing the right thing for this patient. We really have to think about what we're doing, right? So anyways, I know that's very busy, I'm sorry. But that's what a clinical nurse leader is all about. As you guys can see here, these are our competencies. These are our competencies. 
member of professional life learning team, I'm not going to read everything. You guys know how to read, but mainly the coordinator of care in the interdisciplinary rounds, right? But we, we're like the spider in this big web where we actually collaborate with every members of the team, and they in turn collaborate back to us. So we connect the members of the team. That's why the CNL needs to know her resources, and the CNL needs to have a phone, okay? <laughs> so CNL's role impact in the acute care setting, we focus on the patient as a whole. You know what? How do you focus on the patient as a whole? You know, CNLs don't have patient assignment per se, you know, where we, uh, but, but um, uh, you know, we take care of the patient's physical, emotional, spiritual, cultural. You know, we have a patient uh, uh, last week, um, they're sisters, right? Uh, the patient has actually adrenal CA and actually um, metastasized all over her body. She's intubated, she's only 48 years old, and she has an older sister at our bedside, and she's the only family, right? And, you know, clearly there's nothing else we can do for her, right? Um, and, but the sister insists that she be a full code, everything has to be done, and so on and so forth. And so the team, when, when I joined the interdisciplinary rounding, there's always a discussion, I don't understand why. There's nothing else we can do for her. And we we'll understand why she wants to keep her sister a full code. Yeah, that's just a conversation that keeps going on, right? So again, I sat down and, and tried to listen to the sister who's at the bedside at all times. I said, you know, um, you realize your sister prognosis is not good. She goes, Toy, I understand that. She's from a different culture. In their culture, it's not only a culture, but the religious belief that whatever God gives you, you need to take it in. You need to, suffering is good for the soul. That's what she said. Suffering is good for the soul. And, and she believes, they believe that God give you that and, and that you need to, to endure that no matter what happens. And that's why the, she wants her sister to continuously be a full coat and she said that's what her sister wants to do when she was diagnosed with cancer. And so what I did is, you know, I have our pastor Catholics um, from, from the Philippines. So I actually um, have our chaplain come over and talk to them. It's okay, you know, and have the palliative care come over. And then I have to relay this information to our medical team because really clearly they, they, they couldn't understand why are we doing this, you know. And this hasn't happened uh, once only. This has happened uh, several times. But you really need to uh, you know, understand. It's not only culture, it could be um, religious beliefs. That's so important to them. And we need to respect that, okay? A CNL is also uh, it's a role model. When they see that leader behind your name, they look at you and what you're doing. Oh, she's a leader, so she has to be good, right? <laughs> so you have to walk the talk. You have to walk the talk. And really, walking the talk is the best way to influence and teach. Walking the talk, they look up to you. They, they you know, and, 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 and they look at the things that you do, right? A CNL also humanize and personalize healthcare experience. And that's why it's very important for me as a clinical nurse leader to always make time to sit down with a patient, do my own nurse leader rounding and ask, the patient and or the family, is there something I can do for you today? There's something that you want to discuss with me. A lot of times they will say, I haven't really seen the doctor yet. I've been here the whole day. 
And so I will send the physician, hey, do you mind going to the patient's family and, and update them on what's going on with her, with her mom? Things like, CNLs actually balance the art and science of nursing. You know, we, this is a wonderful world. We have the best of both worlds, right? We do. How many occupations in the world? How many occupations, even like for nurses? Nurses balance the art of science and nursing. How many occupations in the world do you see that you can actually impact somebody else's life in their most vulnerable state, right? When they're very sick, we are able to impact the decisions. We're able to impact uh, the, the care at the bedside. I know, and this basic too, right? It literally takes a village to take care of one patient. You guys know that? It does. It does take a village. And you know, some of this might not be indirect. Some of our indirect or direct care providers, right? But one thing to, to look at this is that there's interdependency among these caregivers, right? But one thing you have to ask, are they really talking to one another? Do they really talk to one another? Or they just put in, in the EMR? Hey, this is what I found. Putting in the EMR, but who is the EMR? Do you think physicians have time to read all the EMRs? All, everyone, everyone, pharmacist, nursing, social worker? They only make the time when they need to take a look at your charting. So that's a very important thing to remember. That's why there is so much fragmentation in care, because we are not collaborating effectively, which means timely and consistent at the point of care, right? I know, that's just, uh, I like doing mind maps. Do you get, who likes doing mind maps? I do my groceries in mind map too. Anyway. <laughs> so mind map is a wonderful tool, by the way. You know, uh, um, so this is where I used to work in medical intensive care. I'm, 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 I'm take, I took care of 20-bed ICU and 12-bed uh, intermediate care unit. So average age of our patients 16 years old, average age 61, pulmonary diseases, sepsis, GI bleed, neurologic events, admissions, 50% come from ER and from within hospitals, our hospitals. As you can see, guys, you know, I, I'm responsible for regulatory metrics, evidence-based practice, hospital-acquired conditions, but one thing that I really, truly believe is a team building. Team building is very important. Um, uh, it's a very important uh, competency of a clinical nurse leader. My role is not limited to here, to what I have here. But uh, I believe that ensuring the patient's safety and building a team that believes and cares about the safety of the patient is very important. When you're a CNL, you always have to think about that. How can you involve the team? You know, you'll be more successful than just doing it by yourself, okay? So interdisciplinary runs, this is what I do, okay? I, I cannot belabor that. Timely, consistent at the point of care, decrease the fragmentation of care. This is actually the rounds. So when we're doing rounds, uh, you know, one of the things I found out is that, you know, do you guys, you guys familiar with SVT, spontaneous breathing trial? It's actually when, you know, RT assess the patient and ventilator see if they can fly on their own, right, without being connected to vent, right? So our respiratory therapist does that. But what I've been finding out is that it takes four to six hours for our physicians to evaluate the patient if they need to be extubated if the patient passed the spontaneous breathing trial. Do you get me? Understand that? So four to six hours, at the end of the six hours, they're so tired. The patient's so tired breathing through this tiny tube because they're a spontaneous breathing trial, right? And, and we, have, we ended up putting them back in the van. I said, that's not right. 
You know, why is it taking a long time? And we, I, I, I presented before attending, they said, well, Toy, we have to round. We have to round. I said, I understand that, but do you guys realize that we have four to six hours before you can even evaluate the patient? So we talked. And they said, okay, Toy, what do you want us to do? Well, here's what we want to do. What we're going to do is, here's what we can do. Let's, let me order a board. This is the board. This is the board. These are our patient rooms. So every time that the patient passed the SBT early in the morning, because our RT does the SBT like a four to six, four or five, they need to indicate who passed the SBT. They need to indicate who are the patients that needs to be evaluated for extubation. So here's our, uh, our RT, she's writing who passed the SBT, and guess what? Before rounds, we have a tiny huddle. I know we're full of huddles, aren't we? But we have a tiny huddle. What we do is uh, take a look at all the patients who passed the SBT, and then we go to that room first. And so the attending physician gets to evaluate who passed the SBT, and then they extubate the patient. So there's always a way to work on things. You're gonna say, well, we're rounding toy, but you know, isn't this part of your rounding, right? So that's how we were able to resolve, resolve that issue. And now every morning, one makes sure that, you know, RT indicates who passed SBT, and that's where we go first to round the patient. Of course, there are patients who are crashing, we go there first, right? So, coordinate okay, care, I'm not gonna read all this, but the CNS role during interdisciplinary rounding um, are this, we ensure that the, that the, um, they are the, pa the patient's getting the best care. You know, I'm also an infection prevention person. You know, they said I should wear a yellow gown. <laughs> because what I do is during interdisciplinary rounding, we ensure, watch over if they're wearing the PPEs. What, what have I done in the past, I actually have what you call a safe zone. Do you guys do a safe zone? A safe zone is actually a, 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 um, some sort of a demarcation, a line that says, hey, this is the space, once you pass this space, if the patient's isolation, you need to wear your gowns. It's normally like six feet away from the patient. It can be a tape, it can be a, 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 you know, a paint or whatever. It's a designation, designated place. Once you pass that, that uh, area, you need to wear a gown. You need to wear your PPEs. Because a lot of times nurses, they just need to take a look at the patient. Do they really need the gown or whatever? No, so I work with infection prevention to do that. And um, we actually are seeing more and more uh, physicians and nurses who are adhering to the use of PPEs when we did that. So I also monitor trends and commonalities of strains of bacteria. You know, we're medical intensive care. You know, all the times that I see uh, six, seven, eight, C. diff, C. diff, C. diff, MRSA, MRSA, MRSA. And I'm like, something's wrong here. So I monitor that. I'm on constant communication with an infection prevention team. What's going on here? Can you tell me? Okay. Antimicrobial stewardship. Are you guys doing that? Very important, isn't it? And it, it really, physicians need to be mindfully aware that you need to be judicious in the use of, uh, of uh, antibiotics. So what I've done in, the, in, in, our, in our area is I actually have a logbook where the residents or the interns actually get to indicate who are the patient antibiotics? Of course, all of our patients, ICU, right? And then if the patient has been an antibiotic more than three days, they need to indicate what is the indication, what is their plan? Are you going to escalate, de-escalate, change the course of antibiotics, or do another microbiology lab? 
That is to promote mindful thinking of the use of antibiotics. Initially, they said, seriously, Todd, you want us to, to, to log that? I said, yeah, seriously, I want to do that. Because you know what? I don't have time to go on all of the patients' chart and figure out who has antibiotics more than three days. All I need to do is take a look. And all it only takes a second for them to write that, right? Interdisciplinary rounding, I have the nurses actually uh, report on this. The team listens to the nurse. Because nurses are here 24-7, right? We're here always at the bedside. So we know everything that's going on with the patient, right? And we need to make sure the physician knows about that too. You'll find out initially is that when, before we did this, uh, the, the intern will be giving a report, right? And the nurse will go, no, it's not. <laughs> and the intern will report, no, it's been deceived. No, it's not. No, you're wrong about that. Well, yeah, because the nurse is at the bedside all the time. And a lot of times, you have new residents. Do they even go in the patient's room, or they read the previous chart? I'm not saying they all do that, but I'm just saying that that's sometimes what happens, right? And so nurses have a time during interdisciplinary rounding. They need to report on those most important things about ABCDF. If you were in the ICU, you know what I'm talking about. This is our, um, our, our whiteboard in the room. Our whiteboard in the room really works well for us because this is what we want. You know, there are different kinds of whiteboards, so you have to make sure that your whiteboard is working well for you and your needs. This is working well for us because we're doing purposeful rounding. You know, purposeful rounding, initially I had a hard time introducing that to ICU nurses. They told me that, why do I need to do in purposeful rounding? I'm practical here every minute. I said, at those every minute, are you checking if the patient has pain? Are you checking if the patient's position needs to be changed? Are you checking if everything the patient is under there? Are you checking? Sorry. Oh, yeah, 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 I know it, okay. <laughs> that is purposeful rounding. And they go, why? And then you have to say, why? It has, it's evidence, right? It's evidence based. It actually decreases collapse, decreases pressure ulcer patient satisfaction. So you have to tell them always why. You just don't tell them, do this, do this, do this. Um, you got to tell them why, 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 right? So, and, and after uh, several huddles and education, why, why, why we're doing things, oh, that makes sense, because the first thing they tell me, I practically live in the room. Yeah, you live in the room, but are you asking? But you're probably doing your CRD, doing other things, but really not addressing those issues. That's the main purpose of purposeful rounding. Another thing is this, for collapse prevention, I always want to indicate when was the central line placed. A lot of times we're all wondering what's the cause of sepsis, and lo and behold, we found that it's actually the line's been there for years, right? I mean, not really years, but <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And, and we want to know the plan of the day. The physicians write this. This is so that everyone is on the same page. You have other consults coming, nephrologists, everyone, cardiologists coming. They need to know what you're planning for your patient, right? We also want to make sure progressive mobility. We do that uh, in our uh, unit as well. RNs does it, and this is the physicians. They know. Before they set foot in MICU, we have the, train, the residents trained already what they need to do. Because I have, the, I, I have four, four hours with them and also the other members of the team, we give them a short uh, orientation before coming to MICU. 
I'm not going to go through all this. Uh, these are a lot of IC quality initi initiatives that we do in ICU. And what is the CNO's role? We need to reinforce this. We want to make sure that this is happening, OK? We monitor uh, adherence to core initiatives, such as a collapsing head of bed elevation. I've talked to you about that earlier. Really, I mean, you there, so it's so easy. You go from room to room and take a look at the, if that's all the things that you want for the patient are happening. And that's a wonderful role to be in because you can actually educate the nurses, whether it's the nurses, whether it's the uh, residents at the bedside. Also, I'm also coordinator of the septic shock. You know, as you guys know, 80 to 90% of the septic shock population comes to medical intensive care. So in, in doing this, um, I all uh, coordinate uh, the, um, the, the, what we call, we have a sepsis huddle. I know, another huddle, right? We'll have a huddle. <laughs> so what happens is whenever I found out, a lot of times I get a pager, they tell me, hey, where is a septic shock coming to ER? So I'm already on the alert, right? So what I do is, as soon as we get a report from this patient, from the ER, we have a small huddle, just the resident, me, and the nurse who's gonna be taking care of a patient. We have a septic shock heart where we have all our IDs and our saline stuff like that, our pressure bags and all that, right? And what we do is we actually talk about the patient. It only takes like two or three minutes. Okay, the three hour bundle, done. If it's not, we write in there. So that's when this patient comes, we wanna make sure the patient has the 30 ml per kg of IV fluids, you wanna make sure that they have antibiotics, we wanna make sure that antibiotics wasn't given before they even do the blood culture, and that has happened, <laughs> way. So those are things, so a CNL, as a CNL, I evaluate, facilitate, expedite the management of patients who is in septic shock. And this has really um, proven to decrease our mortality rate in septic shock. Progressive mobility, wonderful tool. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Decreases delirium. Uh, I remember the first time I got up our patient, the nurse almost beat me up. Yeah, the first time that we decided to do a progressive mobility in our patient, the patient's on the vent, right? Because as soon as we get up our patient, secretion starts pouring out. And the nurse goes, see, I told you, Toy, he's not ready, he's not ready. I said, yeah, she's ready, let's suck you in the patient. And guess what? The day after that we mobilized that patient, the patient got extubated. And there's something about mobilizing them that's just really very important. When you start mobilizing your patient, like say they were in sedation, turned off sedation, then of course you have to look at other variables, right? Um, they actually start looking at the surrounding. Start looking at the surrounding, they look at you from head to toe. And you'll feel like, oh, is she sizing me up? Or is she looking at me like that for? No. They're actually becoming aware of their surrounding, that there's more than the ceiling, that there's a 3D in the world, right? And they're starting to realize it's like clouds being lifted from them, that, hey, you know, oh my goodness, this is so good, you know? And they're becoming more aware. So that's why progressive mobility is very important, guys, very important. It affects the patient's delirium. You don't want your loved ones to be in ICU not moving. And that's a mother. If I do my rounds and the patient is in the bed, I don't care how wonderful the bed is, how, how, how clean the bed is, but if the patient is in the bed, that's not good. We need to get them up. We need to mobilize them. As you guys know, progressive mobility is not lifting the patient from the bed to the chair. 
it's actually progressive, which means you start with sitting up and then dangling and then walking uh, and, and, and in place. That's progressive mobility, building their endurance, okay? So it's not uncommon to see patients out of bed. I see you now. They have to be out of bed. You don't want them. Years ago, what we've done is with our patient, years ago, like 1999, when our patient is, um, is actually out of the middle of the bed, what we do is we put them to bed, we tie them, and we sedate them. That's no longer true, right? We don't do that anymore. We also advocate, CNLs uh, also advocate for patient. You know, there was a time when I was actually um, doing my rounds, nurse leader rounds, and there's a daughter at the bedside. And she was, again, you can tell she's very distraught because her dad is not doing very well. Uh, the patient's actually on continuous dialysis. And you know he's not going to make it, right? And I, and I asked, what, is there something I can do for you today that's really very important for you, you know, that you would like to accomplish? And she told me, you know, I'm, I'm getting married Friday, and, you know, I wish my dad would be a part of the wedding. So guess what we did? We, <laughs> I go, ding, okay. So I got her up there, hey, you want to help me? Let's, let's do these decorations in the room, because we're going to have a wedding in the room. And, and so um, we have her wedding in the room. You know, we call her pastor. They got married inside the patient with, with her dad at the bed, right? The following day, the patient expired, okay? So, you know, um, you guys know HCAPS, right? I'm sure you guys know HCAPS. You know, in the ICU, um, I really want to know how we're doing. You know, HCAPS is more comprehensive. You know, it's not just for ICU, right? But I want to know what are our gaps. I want to know how we're providing the care, how, how good we are or how, how or, 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 or we're not good, right? I want to know that. So what I've done is actually create a way, what, what I call a patient family survey. I involve a social worker, I involve a medical director. So we created some, some questions for the family to assess the gap in the care that we're providing. And you'll be surprised, <laughs> they have a lot of things to say, but um, they have a lot of good things to say also, and that makes us feel better. Uh, we, uh, what I normally do is at the, um, before the patient is transferred to intermediate care unit, what I do is I meet with the patient's family and, and ask them to fill out the survey. And then they put it in the box. You know, I said, when you're done, please put it in the box. And, and we've gotten a lot of positive feedback. You know how sometimes you wonder, are we really doing good? Okay, we cannot rely on age caps, right? Because that's more of everyone's, right? But I really want to know if, how my ICU is doing, how, uh, uh, how, uh, if we're not doing so well. I want to know that. Just the ICU, and that's what we have created. I'd be happy to share that with you if you want to. But anyway, so um, as a CNO, you also need to share your outcomes. Share with outcomes even nationally. Um, and I've, I've done a lot of uh, PowerPoint and um, also um, presentations, whether it's a poster, <coughs> or um, most of them locally and nationally. And this is actually what you call the, uh, the COTI algorithm. This is a nursing-driven protocol that you don't really need a physician's order to be CFOLI, right? Mo this, this algorithm is really geared uh, into after you take out the Foley. What are you gonna do after you take out the Foley, okay? So this guided the nurses on how, on how to do it. And this is actually being utilized by uh, our Trinity uh, hospitals. 
As you guys can see, we have indications for Foley. You guys have a nursing agreement protocol? You do? Oh, okay. So as a clinical nurse leader, you also need to look at the data. I mean, really analyze the data. And in when it comes to cotter rate in 2012, as you can see here, our cotter rate is not so hot. 2012, 2013, we managed to decrease our cotter rate because we are pulling uh, our folies like crazy, right? But 2014, I said, what, ha what happened? You know, we've been taking out folies like crazy. And why did our cotter rate go up? As you can see here, this is our folly utilization rate, 81, 0 0.74, 0 0.70. We're really taking out folies in the ICU, right? But what had happened here? Why is no matter, uh, no matter how much folie we take out, we, our cotter rate is still going up, right? And so what we have found out is from a learning defect tool and also during huddles and collaborating with other members of the team is that there's actually a group of physicians who are ordering uh, culture after culture and treating asymptomatic bacteria. So which means that you know, every patient that comes to our unit they do a culture. Of course, urine can be colonized, and they start antibiotic, even though the patient has no symptoms. So we did a big time education with our, uh, with our, um, um, with our physicians on that. Uh, I collaborated with our infection prevention uh, physician. So we, uh, as a CNL, you really need to, to what's causing me? Why is that? I mean, that, that doesn't make sense. We're taking out fully, but then our cardiac rate is still high. So. So um, as you can see, um, the, uh, the role of a CNL has really significantly impacted uh, a lot of regulatory metrics and quality improvement. 70% uh, continuous sedation, right, right now we're 0 to 5%. Progressive milty, all of our patients are getting up and, um, and showing you how good uh, the CNL role can be. No VAP since 2011 and continues to go down. At the start of my role, one69 and 2012, and keep on going, we have no VAP rate and at the institution. And CLABSI is the same thing, May of 2011, no CLABSI, but lo and behold, 2013, we don't have CLABSI, 2014, we have two. Guess why? Because our, in our hospital, we have our inpatient hemodialysis, and it was uh, purchased by a different company. And so they have their own nurses, they have their own, yes, their own team, and those two collapses are actually hemodialysis catheter. So again, the CNL, you need to dig those data. Why, 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 right? And this is the collapse. We have improved our mortality, uh, decreased our mortality, as you say. This is when I started my role, 2010. We have decreased our septic shock mortality rate, and it continues to go down. This is one of the things, as a CNL, it doesn't mean that you just have to be a microsystem. You can also look at literature, look at, and also look at the uh, different products. If you feel that it can make a difference, go for it. Do a research for it, uh, do some literature search, present it before the products committee. And this is one of the things I've created, the seal guard. It's being used by uh, our institution, St. Joe's, at that time. And it has actually really proven to decrease our ventilator-associated pneumonia because most of our patients actually are on the, has the ET to more than 48 hours in MICU, okay? This is what I was talking about, the CD freight. 2011, 12%, 2012, 16, and by 2013, we were able to cut that in half. And that's because of the wonderful job of everyone, but most especially our ES staff. You know, as a CNL, we also need to share our outcomes. We need to share the 
not so great outcomes and the great outcomes. You know, members of the team really appreciate knowing if they've done a good job and if they know that they are, there are areas that they need to improve. As you guys can see, this is for intermediate care unit, okay? We have a lot, we, we still have reds, right? We're not perfect, we have a lot of greens, but we also have reds. And so, um, you know, as a CNL, it's very important for you to communicate that, that outcome to the members of the team. This is just a sample of my metrics, um, the, the one that I do every day. CNLs uh, need to share their outcomes. They need to share their observations, the things that they're doing. These are just some of my past poster presentation that I've done locally and nationally. CNLs challenges traditional practice. That's what I was talking about earlier. One of the examples I want to give is actually uh, the, um, um, when nurses turn off the tube feeding if the gastric residual is more than 250. You don't need to. Yeah, I found that out during our huddle that our nurse in the ICU actually turn off their tube feeding whenever they want to. There's variability in practice. As you guys know, if there's variability in practice, they're more prone to mistakes, right? So we were talking about the huddle, tube feeding, gastro procedural. And I said, well, how come you guys are all different? So I did a survey, and yeah, they are all different. They're turning off tube feeding when the gastro procedural is greater than 100, 150, and they have their own way of dealing with it. So there is clearly a variability in practice. So what I've done is did a literature search, and I found in 2009, Aspen study that actually you don't need to turn off two feelings. The gastric residual is, it, is less than 500 cc's, okay? And so I collaborated with our clinical nutritionist, changed the policy, I did some uh, education, and then we did a post-survey again. We need to be at this, at this, you know, together. We need to practice the same way according to evidence. This is an example of how CNL responded to, uh, to, uh, um, to, to a defect in the system. This is more about the blood drawing. Again, CNL can be, can be doing a lot of things. It's not just, it, you, we're not in silence. We, we can get our hands on everything because that's what we are. We're generalists. Standards of care is very important. Uh, variability in practice is not good. We need to. Uh, have uh, standards in our practice, and this is what I've done as a CNL, created the MICU standards of care. I've also created a lot of education materials. Uh, one of the recent education materials I've created is actually the Minnesota tube or the Blakemore tube. You know, this is something that you don't put on your patient every day, right? You know, uh, that's only when the, uh, a lot of interventions fail to, to, um, to, um, to decrease the, the bleeding for more for GI bleed, right? So what I found out is the physicians, the physicians don't put this a lot, right? Even the GI docs in our institutions. And what I found out that, you know, um, you know they forget those things. So uh, I met with uh, uh, physicians and our intensivists, and what we've done is create actually a nine step on how to place uh, a Blakemore tube in a patient so that when, when we have a patient who's bleeding out and they need to put one of this, they have a step-by-step -step instruction on how to do it. And that helped them a lot. And there are other things uh, I have created to decrease the risk because you really need an ICU. If you're not doing it all the time, you tend to forget things, right? Another way is the hemodynamics. Hemodynamics is, very, is a big part in, in treating septic shock. And uh, to decrease the risk of, um, of failure, what I've done is um, I also do a lot of education hemodynamics. Team building is very important. Uh, like what I said earlier, 
again, team building, every staff member is part of the team. Don't you, do you guys, they, they love pictures, don't they? Every time I have my camera, they all come together. <laughs> they do. Uh, we do uh, team building in ICU. Uh, even uh, Russell and, and Harris, they said that the most basic relationship must occur within horizontal dimensions among colleagues interdisciplinary because they are so important. So you guys see here, when I was introducing the CAM ICU, I pair up the physicians and nurses. I paired them up because they, I want them to practice doing the CAM ICU. So um, they love that and they, they think it's really fun. But they're also learning when they're doing that. Again, huddle. Huddle has to be only five minutes. I'm not gonna uh, talk more about this, but there's so many things to talk about in the huddle, isn't it? Where the first unit does the huddle? Again, it's a busy slide. It is busy because that's what we do. One thing I want to point out here is that, you know, we, we have a, what you call culture of transparency. We have visitors from Japan came in two years ago. They want to know how we're doing things. So they came and they look at my huddle board and say, why are you uh, putting information that, that are not so good? Uh, you mean, which means our metrics, that that's not really good. And so my response to them is that it's all about culture of transparency. And so you do want the patient, the family, know that you're not doing good on some things. I said, it's okay. They need to know what we're striving to work for. What, they need to know what we're working on. They need to know if, we, if, we, if we're not doing so hot in other things that we have a plan. We have a plan on making things right. Make sense? We do games at the huddle. This is our attending. So what we do is pass on ball, and if the ball stops you, when the music stops, you get to answer the question. <laughs> we do progressive mobility. This is when we first initiating progressive mobility. We have the physical therapist actually show us how to transfer a patient, which is very much needed with the ICU nurses, right? Staff appreciation is very important, guys. We do monthly staff appreciation where we get to appreciate somebody who's doing exemplary work. It doesn't have to be a group. It can be an individual. And all I do is get, uh, get, uh, get this, um, create uh, through publishers a certificate, and then I have everyone write good things about that person. And then during the huddle, we, uh, you know, I normally bring cookies or whatever, and, and we celebrate that person. You know, I assign people who want, to talk, uh, who want to talk at the huddle, say something nice about that person. And that really works. And sometimes we video the things that they're saying. And that put them, uh, there's a lot of tears, you know, comes out of that. Again, our ES staff, this is our infection prevention, our medical director. I miss those groups, they're very good. Managing up is very important, we manage up our, our nurses. We manage up everyone, we like managing up everyone. You know that? That makes them feel good. You know, working in ICU is so difficult. Not even ICU, working anywhere as a nurse is difficult. You know, so you need to manage up anytime you can. Um, managing up is so good. Uh, in, in here, we actually say good things, not the bad things, okay? We only write good things about the person, okay? That's managing up. We, we like uh, putting their pictures, saying good things about the person. This is actually a, pay, uh, a patient's family. Says, I want to join the huddle. I said, good, join the huddle. And she says, I have something nice to say, so she, um, she actually managed up one of our nurses. So she's part of our huddle. This is just a way for me to survey what the team uh, thinks about our team building efforts. And as you can see, it's not so bad, right? We're doing all the right things and we're moving up there even now. Do a lot of education. I do lunch and learn. 
I also do the, uh, the, um, the, the five minute in service. You know, at the bedside, I say, if I have a five minute service, but it's not really five minutes, give them something 10 or 15, because they ask a lot of questions. So that's just, um, that's just a way for them to get to my, uh, my 2 p.m. in service. I do a CCR review class, and it is a very good way to empower your nurse. I do also monthly physician-led uh, in-service where they come during lunch. Uh, we have a lunch budget um, that you know a lot of people come and listen to all the expert physicians. I do a lot of mentorship of nurse residents, and I only not mentor them, but I encourage them to actually present. And this is a very, very, very wonderful thing to empower our young nurses. You have a lot of young, smart, and needing, and they really need guidance. They really want to do a good job, and that's a good way to empower them. You know, let them be involved early on in their career. CNOs are lifelong learners. You know, there's a lot of opportunities the CNO can participate, even locally or nationally. You can do a lot of things. But you guys can see here, CNO right and core coordination across the healthcare continuum. Care coordination is not a process. It's actually a system of complex processes that involve everyone. As you guys can see here. But who do you think is the best healthcare provider, educated and leading a team, and able to coordinate this complex process? You guys know the answer, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Since 2003, CNL role has involved value more, uh, evident demand has grown. Why do we need CNL? Well, CNL can meet quality initiatives and deliver on this goal because we're at the point of care. We plan coordinate across populations or service lines, work with ID team, reduce length of stay, prevent readmission. The CNL can make that happen. If you don't have a CNL, find one. <laughs> Possible CNL roles in the healthcare continuum. Well, you know, wherever there's a patient and a team, a CNL should be there. Wherever there's a patient and a team, CNL needs to be there. CNL can actually lead disease management program. We're trained to do that. CNL can be in the ambulatory setting. There's so many needs in the ambulatory setting. Community-based transition programs, that is such a wonderful thing to do to decrease readmission, especially with our Medicare patients. Healthcare environment, like what I said, as long as there's a patient, there's a team. You need a CNL leader. Hospitals, healthcare facilities, rehab, and so on and so forth. There, we have a lot of competencies to, uh, that support the role in different areas of healthcare facilities. Not just in patient, CNLs has to be everywhere. Not because I'm a CNL, but I really feel that that's what we should be doing, right? And there's a lot of studies, actually, as you guys can see here, and they have really good p-value. All of them are a p-value of less than 0.05, which is statistically significant. This is actually CNL-led project outcomes, comparisons of pre-employment uh, of CNLs and post-employment um, uh, or improvement uh, by the CNLs. As you guys can see here in the ambulatory settings, ambulatory settings, there are, there's a decrease in cancellation rate. Ambulatory surgery, surgical inpatient, there's a decrease totally patient transfusion and proplastic. As I see, increased use of VTA prophylaxis, right? And transfusional care, you can see increased dining program participation. So it is good to have a CNL, and this data will tell you why. I'm almost done, two more slides. <laughs> more on the CNL role, more on the CNL. CNLs are changing the focus, the focus 
from discipline-centered to patient-centered care. We are. That's why we need to employ more CNLs in all healthcare settings. Why? Because the patient's story does not begin or end at the doors of the hospital or rehab centers or even at home. That's why you need CNLs. CNLs can build and lead strong partnerships among members of the team, among healthcare providers that are patients seeing. And who are they? Physicians, primary care physicians, home health nurses, physician offices, clinics, everyone, and so on and so forth. Because CNLs, having a CNL in the team can actually benefit patient care, improve patient care outcomes, and prevent readmissions. That's why it's so significant. We need to be everywhere, right? I'm not talking about me, but the CNL. <laughs> CNL role, we need a CNL role that can bridge out to the community. You know, I believe that you guys, Dartmouth has, uh, uh, do you have a community-based transition program? I think I've seen that. You gave community-based uh, community transition program? There are some pieces of it, but not throughout our whole system. Yeah. So I was just perusing through the internet, and I found the San Diego Care Transitions Partnership design. They actually have a CNL leading that, and uh, leading that, that these are mostly um, for patients who are high-risk Medicare beneficiaries. And uh, she has really decreased the readmissions by having that uh, care transition partnership uh, design program. So I borrowed this from my friend, uh, Laura Hardin, gay noser. And um, she, um, one of the things she had said is that she's also a Vanguard Award winner, by the way. CNLs can have a huge impact, not only in the inpatient settings, but also outside the hospitals. CNLs have the ability to lead and manage population health, which is currently doing uh, for Trinity, the complex care populations. And there are endless possibilities what the CNLs can accomplish across the healthcare continuum. Where are the CNLs? Can you please stand up? Yeah, you. Who, are you CNL? Well, not. I'm a clinical nurse leader. But... Oh, well, what I mean? You graduated, right? Did no. you? Oh, who are? So, how many CNLs do we have here? We have one? <laughs> you, you are? You stand up. So, does this make sense to you guys? Yeah. Let's, let's give them. <laughs> This is part of a global initiative. Um, you know, I, I coordinate this in Ann Arbor where we have actually nurses from different countries come to our institution. They would like to be CNLs and they shadow our clinical nurse leaders. Um, this is actually uh, the people from Japan I was talking about. They actually emailed us recently and saying that we, they learned something from us. What do you think they learned from us? Culture of transparency. They said uh, from now on we're going to display or all our metrics, whether they're good or bad. And that's it. Thank you. Do you get some any questions? You're probably tired by now, right? Anybody? Yes. Can you share a little bit more about the structure in the rest of the unit? The structure so in terms of per, other positions that are there, your your leaders, your educators. Can you just give us a sense? Oh, okay. Of what so, like? uh, St. Joseph Mercy Hospital, we actually have, um, um, you know, we have a unit manager, um, we have a CNL, we have um, our educator. Our educator are actually not unit based. It's more like a central educator. 
because she has other intensive care units. We have a clinical nurse specialist. The clinical nurse specialist actually, uh, she handles a lot of population. So she's more of uh, an expert in disease process. We have CNS for diabetes. We have CNS for heart failure. We have CNS for pain, things like that. So they always come to us when uh, there's a new policy. So we, we can't somehow complement the role. Hey, what, what do you, what, Toy, you need really need to work, help me work on this, you know, new policy on the uh, insulin drip. Uh, Toy, can you, you know, I noticed that our pain uh, reassessment is not so good. Can you help me out with this? So we complement the role. So they're, because they're dealing with the bigger populations, um, but we are in the microsystem, and we can influence that right away because we're there, right? Monday to Friday. Anybody else? Is that, is that? That's great, thank you. Anybody else have a question? Hey, Gay. I think you, you talked quite a bit about the role of the CNL as a change agent, um, and could you speak just for a second about um, I know you implement changes rather rapidly. Five minutes, we're starting a whole new procedure, five minutes in the huddle, rather than long education programs or spending a lot of time trying to get people off the unit. And, yeah. Um, so consistency and doing it fast. Could you just speak? Well, you know, uh, it depends on what, what is the change about, okay? You cannot always, uh, so the, the five-minute huddle is just a supplement to the longer in service, right? You know, when we're introducing an initiative uh, such as the hemodynamics, um, um, because a lot, a lot of our nurses, young nurses, don't know anything about hemodynamics, they have to attend the class uh, of formal education. So we have formal education, but we also have the five minutes just to supplement what they have learned and also talk about the application of what, uh, what we taught them. So talking about hemodynamics, hey, you know, who has CVP here? And the nurse, during huddle, and the nurse will say, well, Toy, and I couldn't, still couldn't understand. Well, you know, l let me talk to you later about that. Let's, let's go in the patient room, and I'll show you that. So sort of that. So when there's a big initiative, really, it really, there really has to be a formal um, introduction on that. You know, right now at Sparrow Health System, I'm introducing interdisciplinary rounding uh, because I'm a different hospital now, right? I didn't tell you that, but I'm the um, Sparrow Health System. I'm leading the CNLs there right now. So I, the, the first, in my microsystem assessment, the first thing I notice is we truly need interdisciplinary rounding. And I think you already know why, right? And I've talked that so many times. Why is it so important to have that? And, and, and that's one of the things I'm working on. I'm also, um, I'm also working on increasing the use of palliative care in our ICU. That's a big need. That's a big need. And, of course, I'm working on COTI also. Those are the main three things that I want to initiate first. But, you know, that's not all. I mean, um, just a lot of things. But those are my goals. I want to make sure that I have, I will improve the outcome. I will improve uh, our practices. It, it's a big job, right? But before you even initiate a change, you always need to gather your data. You're going to tell everyone, you know what, we're not doing good, you know. Just because we're not doing, uh, why? Physicians always need data. Give me a data. We cannot just define problem. You need to show data why we don't not, we're not doing well with this. We need to show that. So right now, I'm just in the data stage, right? And then um, when it comes to idea, I have to show them what I have observed. I have to create a PowerPoint presentation and meet with all the stakeholders. Who are the stakeholders? everyone that needs to be in the team. So right now what I'm doing is uh, 
meeting with all the leaders, pharmacy leaders, respiratory therapy, leaders of nursing, leaders, every leaders, I met with them and just let them know this is really important and then I need to do a formal education, do a PowerPoint, data-driven, what I have observed and what other institutions are doing and what are the expected positive outcomes in doing interdisciplinary wellness. That makes sense? So that's why. So uh, again, the short, the huddle, that's only, to, uh, that's only to supplement what has been taught to the nurses, what has been taught during the change. Does that make sense? I also believe you've done some quick adjustments of things. You know, and, um, I get impatient sometimes, though. Yeah, yeah. But you're effective. <laughs> Thank you. And, and there's uh, different ways of doing it. If you know that it, it, you're getting the buy-in, go ahead, make a change. But if you know that they're like, yeah, I don't think so, then you have to work harder. Because it's very important that you get the buy-in of every members of the team. If you don't have a buy-in from everyone, it's not going to work. It, it, it may not work. Everyone needs to be accountable. Everyone needs to get um, your buy-in. Oh, the buy-in. Anything else? Yes. Hi, I'm Amy. I serve as one of the CNSs here in the hospital. So I know that you mentioned education several times, and I, probably like everyone in this room, I'm often really challenged and torn because as a CNS, I find my role is not so much to teach how to do something, but teach why we're doing it, mm -hmm. and behind mm -hmm. it. But I, I'm really torn with so many other duties. Apparently, we need CNLs. But how much time do you dedicate to the bedside? Because I really think that's pretty see, hear, absorb information, and be able to share it. So what's your experience with that? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I, know, I, know, um, I do my PowerPoint at home. <laughs> I, you know, there are times. Again, you're a leader. A CNL is a leader. If you feel that you need the time, there, there was a time when I'm creating a project. I consider Friday as my office day. Friday afternoon, dedicated office day. I know my daughter is told, told, I have a 12 year old, she says, mommy, Friday is my day to be with you, do things with No, honey, after 4 p.m. <laughs> but the 1 to 4 p.m. is my office day. I really need to sit down and, and, and work on projects. And you know what, you need, to call, you need to communicate that with the manager, with the, with the members of the team. They just wanna let you know, I'm gonna work on this project so I will be in my office. If you guys need me, you need to call me. You are a leader, so you can do that. Whatever you, you feel you need to do, do it. You know? You, you know what you're supposed to be doing. Nobody else knows what you're supposed to be doing. You're a, and so as a leader, you need to make that decision. I'm gonna be in my office starting noon to four. I have, I have to work on projects, you know? So that's how you do it. And I, I like teaching. I was an educator, that's why I love to teach. But you know, you know really, a lot of things what I found out is that you know, when things are not going right, it's not really about the nurses just don't want to do it. It's no, no, it's, it's, not because, it's not because they just don't want to do it. It's because a lot of times they don't understand what you want them to do. And I like what you say, that's why, 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 why. That's why nurses are full of whys, and that's good. If you know a nurse is not full of whys, that means they're not, you, know, you, know, you need to ask them, you need to teach them more. Is that okay? Okay. Are we all set? Do you have any questions in the audience?
So I made my time, right? <laughs> Thank you so much for attending.